their kids are headed out, if you have got your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out, turn them on, and join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And we will be picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago before Easter in our journey through the Gospel of Mark that we've entitled uh, Astonished and Amazed. And if you're our guest this morning, I just want you to know you picked a doozy of a day to show up uh, because we are in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13 is probably the most difficult passage of Scripture in all of Mark for us to be able to break down, understand. Uh, it has been a challenge for me as I have been studying, but God has been faithful as He always is, and so I'm excited to be digging into it. And as I've been studying through the, 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 this chapter over the last week, something that has really stood out to, to me, and Sarah and I have talked about this before, and it's something that's, that's come up, uh, especially as we have been participating in the, the pilot program for our new marriage ministry and re-engage, that one of my, my problems, my, my sinful tendencies, is that I, I need to be right a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. Um, and biting my tongue when someone else um, shares something that might be a little bit off or whatever else, it just, it just grates on something inside of me. Because I, I want to be accurate. I want to be accurate with my words. I want to be accurate with my thoughts. And so that has crept into our boys a little bit. And that is where our, our struggle and our rubber is meeting the road as our, our nine-year-old uh, finds it um, possible, or, well, a regular behavior to correct his mother. And he learned that from somewhere, and that's not okay. And most of the time, yes, he is wrong. But I have a want for answers, and I think we all have a want for answers, right? You get to that, that place in your life where you're having a conversation with somebody, and, and you're having a, a conversation you can remember. Maybe I can't remember a name, or I can't remember a movie title, or, or anything else. And there's just this, this, this thing that creeps into your brain that says, I am not going to be okay until I get out my phone, or I get on Google, and I find the answer of whatever it is that's eluding me. And we are always on this, this search for answers, And I find that oftentimes in my life, the reason that I want to be right, the reason that I want answers is because I'm uncomfortable with unanswered questions. I'm uncomfortable with mystery. And we are all oftentimes uncomfortable with mystery. And we're uncomfortable with that mystery because we want a sense of control over our lives. And if we understand how the world works and what's going on in our lives, and we have a roadmap for the future in some way, we have a plan in place, we feel like we're in control. Take away that sense of control, and most of us end up flailing in sin. Because when we don't have that sense of control, we give way to our anxiety, we give way to our discouragement, and we start flailing and grabbing for power. When we are oftentimes easily at that point, discouraged and and deceived even by the things that are around us. And so if you've come this morning and you've maybe been tracking along with us and you've been looking forward to getting to Mark 13, where Jesus talks about the end of things, And you're hoping that this morning I'm going to answer all of your questions about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ and everything else. Just go ahead and get ready to be disappointed. Because the answers aren't here. And the answers aren't from me. That's why Mark 13 can be difficult. Because we come to it wanting that blueprint for the future. Because if we have that blueprint of the future, then we think that we have this sense of security because we know what to expect. But in Mark 13, Jesus isn't interested in giving us a blueprint of the future. 
Instead, he's interested in teaching us to live in the mystery. He doesn't unveil the mysteries of God's plan, but instead he instructs us how to live in light of the mystery of God's plan. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 13, and we will read the entire chapter together. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver, over, deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the end, to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but the, only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he lives, leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay 
awake. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the power and the truth of your word. I thank you for the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is what gives us hope in the midst of our trials, our tribulations, our suffering, the disappointments of this life when things don't go our way. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the truth of your word this morning, that we would find what we need to live faithfully in the face of the mystery that comes with what is still ahead. And may we instead be diligent to keep ourselves by being on guard, by remaining vigilant, by being faithful to what you've left for us to do, which is to proclaim the gospel to all nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we read through this, hopefully you were struck by just how difficult some of the language is in this passage of Scripture to understand as Jesus talks about all of these mysterious events that are still to unfold at the time that he is teaching these apostles. And I know even when I came to this passage of Scripture, I was really hoping that I would be able to nail down some of those answers that I want in my life, even as a pastor, in my understanding. I was hoping to have some of the, the presumptions that I would bring to the passage of Scripture confirmed, and yet I was disappointed. Because again, Jesus is not so much in this passage of Scripture concerned with filling our heads with information. Instead, Jesus isn't concerned with motivating our hearts by commands. There are something like 17 different commands in this passage of Scripture, all tied around these notions of be on guard and stay awake and be ready and be alert. Still, the section of Mark, as we said, is, is we're finishing up this section that Jesus has come into Jerusalem in judgment. It started back in chapter 11 when Jesus comes into the temple and he, and he judges the temple by his action that we typically understand as the cleansing of the temple. But if you remember, when you cleanse something, the purpose is to hopefully restore it to usefulness. But Jesus isn't restoring it to usefulness. Instead, he's judging it. And he rejects what's going on in the, in the temple and the, the ways that the, 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 the rituals and the plans and the purposes of God have been distorted. And so he judges the temple and then all throughout chapter 12, we saw him in conflict with the religious leaders as he sits in judgment with them. And now we come again where Jesus spoke over the temple a judgment in vague terms in Mark 11. He now speaks it plainly in verse 13. And the opening verses establish the, the, the story here and, and what Jesus is attempting to answer. As he and the disciples are leaving the temple for the last time in the Gospel of Mark. And the disciples are overwhelmed with the grandeur of this temple that Herod has built. It was gorgeous. It was huge. He spared no expense, and it's still under construction even at this particular time. As it is built by, with these fabulous, gigantic, white stones, and then it has gold plates and gold gilding all over it, so that when the sun hit this temple, it just shone. It looked like a mountain with a, a snow-covered mountain and gold buildings on top of it when it was seen from a distance and the sun hit it. And they are overwhelmed. It was one of the glorious um, uh, buildings and structures of the Roman Empire at this particular time, and they are in awe of it, except Jesus isn't at all. He rejects the glory of the temple. What's physically beautiful is spiritually repugnant in front of Jesus Christ. 
And in the same way that he rejected the external piety of the religious leaders in chapter, or Matthew chapter 23 where he calls them whitewashed tombs, Jesus rejects the external glory of the temple. And he says that it has been rejected by God and it's going to be destroyed as part of God's plan. Not one stone is going to be left upon another, he said. It's going to be destroyed and turned, and turned over. This awakens a little bit of worry and anxiety in these Jewish disciples of Jesus Christ. Because after all, the temple is the place where the glory of God is supposed to dwell. The temple and Jerusalem itself is supposed to be the city that God has cho chosen to dwell and place His glory. And so if the temple is going to fall, that awakens within them a worry and a curiosity. So they come to Jesus Christ with a question that is crucial for us to understand this entire passage of Scripture. In verse 4, when they come to Jesus and say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things that are about to be accomplished? They, like us, want to know the mysteries of God's plan. They want to be prepared for the days ahead. They want to know what's coming down the pike. But what Jesus proves in this is that there are mysteries that only belong to God. And because that is true, that requires us to trust God's plan, no matter what we face. So Jesus only vaguely answers the question that they present him with, but answers behind, the question that's behind the question even more. The question that they should have asked. The disciples have asked about these things regarding what Jesus has just talked about, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. But Jesus wants them instead to see those things, the things that are coming even beyond that, which is the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's glory and the completion of God's plan of redemption. Jesus wants them to live in anticipation of those days. And those two phrases, these things versus those days, those hours, help us break down this chapter so that we can better understand it and how we're to respond to it. And so Jesus lumps several things together with this notion, or Mark lumps several things together with this notion that he, he describes in the phrase, these things. And the phrase, these things, appears in verse 4, verse 8, verse 23, 29, and 30. And they link together the larger chunks about the testing and the trials and the tribulations and the, the struggle and even the destruction of the temple in verses 1 through 23 with the parable of the fig tree in verses 28 through 31. Because at the end of that, Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mark has linked all of these with this notion of these things. So when we read that, we should be going back to the question of the disciples, when will these things, meaning the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, when will these things take place? So these things speaks directly to that event and Jesus is teaching on this event. He, in his teaching, he unveils certain things. First, he warns his disciples of the, of the temptations that are going to come during this time. The temptation comes specifically in the form of false prophets who are going to rise up and, and take advantage of the turmoil of the world to start leading people away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus warns his disciples and us, not just once, but twice in this passage of Scripture, about the false prophets who will arise and attempt to lead people away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that sin is going to continue in the form of lies and deceptions 
that come from the father of lies who's been lying to us from the foundation of the world. And we're going to see the agents of his deception arise throughout history as false prophet after false prophet is going to arise, did arise in that day, existed before that day of the disciples, and exists even to this day. As men are rising up today to, to declare, I have received a download of information from heaven that unlocks all of the mysteries of the Bible to teach us how we're supposed to live in our day. If you hear someone say, I have received special revelation from God that gives me a new interpretation of Scripture, run! Run! Because they're building their found, they're founding their, the foundation of their ministry is not the Bible, but their interpretation of the Bible and this new information that God has somehow magically implanted into their brain. It is scary, it is dangerous, and it is still happening today. Jesus says, be alert, be aware. Don't be tempted away from the truth of the gospel that he has proclaimed. He also warns us about the coming tribulations. Tribulations that exist specifically in wars, and rumors of wars, struggle and strife. Sin's going to continue in the form of those power struggles among men as nations are going to rise, as nations are going to fall, as the greed of one generation is going to topple the, greed, or the, the nation and the, the power of their forefathers. And they're going to establish this again and over and over. It's a pattern that has existed from the foundation of the world that existed at the time of Jesus Christ and continues to exist today. And there's suffering that comes because of that. But also in tribulation, we see that the world is suffering, as Paul makes clear in the book of Romans, that all of the earth is groaning under the weight of our sin. And so there's tribulation that's going to exist in the form of natural disasters. And that is going to encompass everyone in the world, including Christians. The children of God will be wrapped up in these tribulations. And this is even going to include and lead to the fall of the holy city, Jerusalem. Jesus warns us also against the trials that are inevitably coming to Christians. The people of God are going to be betrayed. It's an important word that shows up again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark. This, this word that appears three times between the verses 9 and verse 13, you will be delivered over, you will be delivered up. Your brother will deliver up brother. It's the word betrayed. It is the word that Mark is going to use in the next couple of chapters to talk about what Judas did to Jesus. He's going to be betrayed. And the people of God are going to be betrayed by even those that they love, those that are closest to them. And the reason for this is because the world hates Jesus. It's not personal against you. The world hates Jesus. And so the world hates anything and anyone that is associated with Jesus. Because Jesus stands over and against the world. And this hatred of Jesus and anyone who is associated with Jesus primes the pump for all of those who are in Christ to endure the trials so that in the midst of them, they might faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution, trials, tribulation, suffering, that's the place where the power of the gospel is most clearly on display. 
And so Jesus says here, when this trial comes, don't draw back, don't hide from it. Instead, trust in the Holy Spirit who is going to indwell you, to give you the words, to preach and to proclaim at that particular time in power and in might because the gospel must be preached before all nations. It's in the times of trials and tribulations and temptations that we as Christians are called to stand up and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because even as we face down those trials and tribulations, we stand against all that the world holds up as valuable, as, the one, as we hold fast to our faith despite the threats against us, against our family. Look at the places in the world where Christianity is illegal and see how the, cry, the church of Jesus Christ is thriving in the underground. Because that's the place where there is no such thing as half-hearted belief or faith in Jesus Christ. You're either all in or you're all out. The apostles and Jesus, as they are thinking through these things, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, see through it, through the immediate situation, to the end of the age. Throughout Scripture, there's a close association with the events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of all things. The apostles know it, and so do Jesus. And we see that in this passage of Scripture it's kind of like an optical illusion. I think that I've got a, one of the more famous ones that you can look at right there. You see, when you look at it, maybe if you focus on the black area, what do you see? Two faces. But if you focus your attention on the white area, what do you see? A vase. And so depending on what you're looking at and what grabs your focus, you can see these two images begin to come in and out of one another. And so as the disciples begin to think on the destruction of Jerusalem, they can't help but think of the end of the age. And when they think of the end of the age, they can't help but think of the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is where we see a blending of the these things and the those things, those days, in verses 24 through verse 23 as that language appears overlapping one another in that one paragraph. Those days and these things. And there's this blending together of these two events. Because after all, how can we not look at the destruction of the place where God has declared, my glory will dwell there? How can we not see its destruction and ask, well, where then did God's glory go? If that place has been destroyed and that is the place that God said, that will be my special place where I will choose to dwell and it is destroyed and it, the, the glory of God does not somehow just depart from the world. Instead, it must be displaced in something else. And if that's the case, where has it gone? And that's what motivates us to then look forward beyond the destruction of the temple to that day, the day when Jesus Christ will return in all of the glory of God. And so we see Mark move into the language of those days. And the phrase those days, that day, that hour, appear in 17, verse 17, verse 18, verse 24, and verse 32, linking together the larger sections that talk about Jesus' glorious return and the parable of the sleeping servant. And just as we learn certain things in the last section, in this section, we learn certain things, that we don't get details of the timing of the, of the return of Jesus Christ, but instead we get these large truths that should shape our lives. First, we learn that Jesus' return is going to be unmistakable. There is no such thing in Scripture as a secret return of Jesus. There is no mistaking the sky going black, the sun going out, the moon going dark, 
the stars disappearing, and Jesus showing up in all the glory of God for all the world to see. Look what he says, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man. There's no question. He will be seen. The world as we know it will respond to the arrival of the Son of God in the glory of God, such that everything that we see as a source of light the sun and the moon and the stars. Everything that the ancient world saw as a source of power, the heavenly hosts, just goes dark in comparison to Jesus in all of his glory. And that makes us think then even beyond this passage of Scripture to what John promises us at the end of the book of Revelation that there in that new heaven in the city of God, there won't be a need for the sun because God's glory gives light to everything. And so Jesus comes in all of the glory of God in an unmistakable manner. But not only do we learn that Jesus' return will be unmistakable, we, relearn, we also learn that it is final. Mark intentionally doesn't give us any of the information beyond it that we see in other passages of Scripture and that it's most characteristic of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We don't see the new heavens and the new earth. We don't see the temple of God come down. We don't see this... this this place where pain is, no longer exists because all of that is wrapped up in the arrival of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Jesus' coming brings things to an end. It's all, all of the promises of God are bound up in that. And it's the return of Jesus Christ. Do you realize, even as we talk about the gospel, even as we talk about God's plan of redemption, do you realize you're living in an unfinished story? All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we can understand and live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been transformed. But God's not done yet. It only ends when Jesus comes back and finishes it. The gospel is still incomplete as we look forward to that day when Jesus will come and that is the final event. That is the finish line of God's story. So we learn that it's unmistakable. We learn that it is final. We also learn that it's sudden. They're asking for signs. And if you go back and you look a little bit in, in Mark's gospel, you'll realize that when the Pharisees came and asked signs, Jesus didn't have a, best, a really great response for them. He actually had, a, very, he had a, a, a response that he condemned them for their want to look for signs. So Jesus, in a very tender way, is telling his disciples, looking for signs is looking to be deceived. Looking for signs is the wrong thing to do. Because there is no such thing as a sign that lets you know Jesus is coming tomorrow. That's the mystery of this. This passage of Scripture and the mystery of the Bible is that we don't know when this arrival of Jesus Christ is going to take place. And anyone who says they do know is cuckoo. And again, run. Because Jesus says here that not even he nor the angels know that day or that hour. So the person who says, I've calculated it all out, and I know that Jesus is going to arrive on such and such a date at such and such an hour, so go sell everything that you have and stand out in this field with me in a white robe and await for Jesus Christ, you're going to look just as stupid as they do if you follow them. Just as stupid as other people have looked in the past because they've been deceived. And that reflects on all of the gospel 
and every believer in, out, throughout history. And so we have to realize that there is no anticipating it. Instead, it's just going to come. And in this arrival of Jesus Christ, and in this promise that he has here, as he even states, I don't even know. The Son does not know, but that is something that is a mystery that exists within the Father. Jesus exemplifies what it means to faithfully live in the hope of God's plan while fulfilling his purpose in obedience. As Jesus came and lived in obedience, faithfully fulfilling the role that God had for him, despite not having all of the details. And that's a mystery that we cannot fully understand that does not in any way affect the reality of the Trinity or the glory and the deity of Jesus Christ. But instead what we find is that Jesus shows what it is to be faithful. Functioning within God's mysterious plan. Trusting God's mysterious plan. And that's what unveils the real key message of this entire chapter. Is that despite the trials and the tribulations, God's people will be rescued by God's Savior according to God's plan in God's time, period. That's what this passage of Scripture is about. This passage of Scripture is not about details. It's about the big truth that despite all of the trials, all of the tribulations, all of the sufferings that you will face, that I will face, that the church has faced for the last 2,000 years, despite it all, God has a plan and he will finish it. And key to his plan is his son, his savior, Jesus Christ. So look to him. And since we can know this is true, and trusting in this, Jesus then exhorts us to be on guard and to stay awake. Despite trials and tribulations, God's people will be rescued by God's Savior according to God's plan and God's time. Therefore, don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived by false prophets and false narratives and an attempt in your own way to to understand all of this and make it all make sense and put the pieces of God's puzzle together. It's God's puzzle. Quit playing with it. We can be tempted to try to wrestle the control of God out of his hands by attempting to grasp answers and information that God won't give and doesn't have to. The Bible says the mysteries of God, the mysteries belong to God. Newsflash, when you get to heaven, there's no promise in the Bible that all your questions will get an answer. We will live in the mystery because, here's the thing, when you die and go and be with Jesus, you don't become omniscient because then you would become God. God is his own purpose and has his own right to have information that he holds to himself because the truth of the matter is, if God can be understood, if God can be compartmentalized, if God can be fathomed in any way, shape, or form, or fashion, then he's not God. You are, because you've got him in your box. So don't deceive yourself, and don't be deceived by others who come saying in the midst of all of the struggle, and in the midst of all of the trial, and in the midst of all of this other kind of stuff, hey, we've got the answers. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be afraid. There's an answer to your suffering. We've got it all figured out. We've put the pieces of the puzzle together, either because we've received some download of information from God that gives us the unseen, undeclared pieces of the puzzle, or because they have just spent their lives with their nose in this book, 
And there is great fruit and there is everything else. But when you treat this as a text for you to master, instead of a text that is supposed to master you, and we live our lives with our nose into this timeline of creation such that we completely ignore the mission that Jesus Christ has left to us, we have wasted our life. So Jesus said, don't be deceived. And since we can know that God is working according to everything according to his plan and his time by his Savior, we can also not be discouraged. Don't be deceived. Don't be discouraged. Because there is this profound mystery that takes place in verse 34 where Jesus jumps from the destruction of the temple to the arrival of Jesus Christ with two words, those days. And clearly, in those days... From the destruction of the temple to the return of Jesus Christ includes the last 2,000 plus years of history and who knows how long. As Jesus jumps from AD 70 all the way to question mark in time when it comes, when he returns. And we're left in this place as Christians have been left in throughout the millennia asking when God is now the time. And only coming to find out now is not the time. So we're suffering and we're experiencing trials and tribulation and we're hurting and our relationships are falling apart and all of this stuff. When is it going to end, God? And so the temptation is to just be tired. And in your being tired and exhausted because we can endure suffering when we can see the end, But take away that finish line, and enduring suffering becomes almost unbearable. Because we're left asking the question, how long? With no answer. And so we can become discouraged, and we can give up. And we can just go about living our lives with this halfway conceived notion in the back of our mind that says, okay, Jesus is going to come back. I get that. So I'm just going to live my life. When Jesus would have you stay awake, stay alert, be busy about the mission that he has left for you to preach, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live in love with him in front of every single person that you meet, that they might know his love too. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Don't drop the ball. Don't let your discouragement keep you from being busy and living and working with a sense of urgency because it might be three seconds from now okay not then it might be this week it might be in your great-grandchild's generation don't give up be busy about the work of proclaiming the gospel Trusting in God's plan, just as Jesus Christ trusted in his plan. Living in the mystery. Recognizing that all of the trial, all the tribulation, all of the suffering is part of God's plan. And if God's in charge, and it's as bad as it looks, trust me, I can give you all the control in the world and you can't do it any better. So trust in God. Trust in his plan. Do not let yourself be deceived. Do not let yourself be discouraged. Don't give up, but instead pursue Christ with all that you have. The mysteries belong to God. 
And because that's true, he invites us to live a life in love with him in faith that he will accomplish his plans in his time by his Savior for our good. So I'd ask you, how do you need to respond this morning? How do you need to embrace the mystery of God's plan and live instead in obedience, live in faith, live in perseverance, live in endurance, live in trust? How do you need to turn away from distractions? How do you need to turn away from discouragement? How do you need to see Christ and pray that the Spirit would return to you the joy of your salvation, that you might be motivated to serve and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you need to live in love with God and in trust with God in front of those that are around you this week? Would you bow your heads and go before the Lord? Seek His face and ask Him that question. God, how do I need to respond? How do I need to surrender control to you today? Spend a moment in prayer and I'll close this in a moment.